Radio. Yeah, that's right. It's right here on KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM. Join the fun and great music with Ronnie and Tom right here on KPFT starting January 2nd at 2 o'clock. You know, I grew up hearing that women are bad with money. But like many of you, I spent years paying bills, managing checking accounts, and taking care of my family. So, turns out women are pretty good with money after all. And now, I'm taking control of my financial future by saving for retirement. It's never too late to start, and there's a great website to help you. Check out WeSaySaveIt.org and jumpstart your retirement savings on your budget and your timeline. That's WeSaySaveIt.org. Brought to you by AARP and the Annual. Welcome to Growing Up in America, KPFT 90.1. With me uh, is uh, Naomi Fletcher. I'm Bob Sanborn. Naomi, how's it going? It's a great day, Bob. It's a great day. We're going to be talking about some good stuff today here on Growing Up in America. Uh, This is a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and a community do when it comes to taking care of every single one of our children. Uh, We're from Children at Risk. This is a production of Children at Risk, the voice for the Children of Texas, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of the youth of Texas. We aim to fill the same 60 minutes every week with experts on the quality of life uh, for children. And a number of good features today. First off, the biggest feature, Naomi is here in the house. I'm excited about that, Naomi. Yeah, yeah. Good to be back. Good to be back. It's going to be good. Thumbs up, thumbs down today. We're going to be talking a little bit on that. The the number on the date of the day, I'm going to let you guess on this, Naomi, 112. Do you know what that's all about? 112 affordable housing units throughout is that it? The greater metroplex <laughs> of Texas. I don't There's know. There's only 112. <laughs> We're talking a little bit about housing today, though, right? I mean, this is going to be one of our themes today as we talk about housing, uh, homelessness, uh, children and families in houses. So we'll be talking through that today. So it uh, should be a good one. And I'm excited to have Naomi with me today. And... Uh, was it last week that you were here, Naomi, or was it the week before? It was last week. It was week. last week. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear you did a bang-up job. So uh, You know, it was my birthday last show. It was. It was. 29? So we, that's the way I brought it in, 29 strong. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Very good. All right. First up, uh, we'll do a little bit of thumbs up, thumbs down. And uh, do we have any theme music for thumbs up, thumbs down? I always like a little theme. There we go. All right. Uh, Thumbs up, thumbs down. We're going to be asking today, should schools be monitoring students' public social media accounts? So what do you think, Naomi? Should should schools get in there and monitor? Uh, I've heard that there are good reasons for this, right? Sort of monitoring what's going on to bullying and so forth. Or is this sort of private space? Should schools stay out of it? You know, it's a tricky one because when kids come to school, they bring with them the interactions that they're having outside of school. So what do you do if there's a threat against another child's safety? So what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Should we monitor this stuff? Uh, I'm going to 
to go with thumbs down because I oh. don't think schools should be the ones to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. But, you know, when you think about the pros of this idea, right, monitoring the bullying, safety, uh, they're less likely to post, put negative posts up on their social media, right, if they know that they're being monitored. I thought that was sort of an interesting point, right? Uh, and if you're bullied online in the past, if you see that there's someone there monitoring, you're more like, likely to sort of uh, uh, stay up with it. So, but But the cons, right? Talk a little bit about those. Yeah, you know, um, the inability to separate irrelevant posts from the threatening ones. You know, sometimes kids just want to be kids. And they want to have a little bit of fun. They don't mean anything about it. And then they get this big punishment at school. That could be a negative. Sometimes they're just little idiots. And they don't don't have any idea what they're doing, right? (laughs) Well, Dr. Bob, we probably shouldn't call them idiots. But, you know, we get the gist. Uh, What about the need to have a freedom of expression? You yeah. know, that's a that's a con. Like yeah. kids need a space where their parents and their adult mentors are not censoring them, not looking at what they're doing. So is social media the place where they should be able to express their freedom of speech? Yeah. I you know, I'm against the idea of monitoring. However, that being said, I think a child should be able to say Hey, hey, Miss Fletcher, could you check out this? I I feel like I'm being bullied and people aren't being fair. And to be able to go in and say, oh, I'm looking at this. I'm calling these people to the office because of this. So not a constant monitoring, but it should be part of our interactions, right? It should be part of what we do every day. So we don't need a monitor. But listen, if you're going to post stuff online, beware, there could be repercussions, right? It seems to be the fair way. And every parent's got to reiterate that, right? Yeah. Have your way, but and, uh, be and, careful. And parents should be monitoring as well because parents need to understand this. And this is a thing that I know we've talked about in the past is that so many parents think that what's happening with their kids online, what's happening with their kids on their phone, they feel like it's like a diary, like it's privacy. But if anyone can intervene and see what's going on, it should be a parent, right? So, uh, and, and they need to let their kids know, listen, I'm going to be monitoring your stuff, right? So. Yeah, you know, that's a hot topic these days. What is the appropriate age to start monitoring? We could go on a whole nother thumbs up, thumbs down there. But let's keep it with this. Should the schools be monitoring (laughs) social media accounts? Let us know what you think. That's very good. All right. All right, we're off to Austin. Woody Rogers is with us. Uh, he's with Housing Works Austin. Uh, they do affordable housing advocacy and policy. Woody is the research manager at Housing Works. Woody, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Very good. Very good. Hey, t- talk a little bit about uh, what you guys do in Austin. Sort of like the quick speech in terms of what you're doing in terms of uh, affordable housing. Yeah, sure. So Housing Works Austin is a a, a 501c3 nonprofit that focuses on um, advocating for uh, a greater supply of affordable housing in Austin, and we do that through three main ways. Um, Research, which is mainly what I do. Um, Educational initiatives, um, so talking about housing throughout the community. And then um, advocacy, so advocating for policies or topics that would further expand the uh, affordable housing opportunities in the region. And Woody, from your purview, are things worse in Austin than any other part of Texas, or is Texas sort of a mess as a whole, or both, when it comes to housing? Um, I think that the situation in Austin has definitely uh, more rapidly um, intensified over the past decade or so. Um, You know, there's been 
us and the region in general have been growing probably faster than any other metropolitan area in the country over the past decade. But we're seeing this sort of growth happen across Texas um, and all sort of the large yeah. metropolitan areas, Houston, Dallas. Um, and so I'd say Austin's a little bit worse, but it's kind yeah. of both. Give us some of your research highlights. Who are you finding as the population most in need of affordable housing these days? Yeah, so I think definitely um, uh, lower-income households, lower and even moderate-income households now are, are struggling to find both affordable rental and um, especially affordable homeownership uh, opportunities in the housing market just because um, because of the growth that, we, that we're seeing and also because housing prices have risen so much over the past especially three, four years. Um, there's just not the same level of availability of housing that, that we were used to, especially in, in parts of Texas um, that was kind of known as some of lower cost of living compared to other, um, you know, like the coastal parts of the country. Um, so low-income households, um, definitely single-parent households are struggling. Um, yeah. Woody, give us, you know, since you're our first guest today, as we as we talk a little bit about housing, mm-hmm. what is the root cause? Uh, I mean, it, you know, how is housing a big deal for us? I mean, people think of Texas as being uh, lower cost of living. Uh, some of our cities, right, rank near the bottom in terms of cost of living mm-hmm. uh, uh, in uh, compared to other cities in the United States. What is the root cause for uh, a housing problem? I mean, I think that there's no one single root yeah. cause. I mean, um, history of of, in, um, of inequality through yeah. public policy has definitely led to inequality in the housing market and, and how that manifests itself in sort of housing instability for different socioeconomic groups, but also just the lack overall of, of housing units, like purely physical units. It's just um, in different parts of Texas, uh, it's... It, it, uh, the local policy is obviously different in terms of uh, development, but um, especially in Austin, it's just land has gotten so expensive and, and the uh, ability to really develop enough housing that we can really provide um, shelter for as many people um, as, as we need to. Uh, it just has become difficult to find available units, and, and that means that it's the costs go up. So I would say that those two sort of just the history um, and, and inherent sort of inequalities in our in our economic condition, as well as sort of the the lack of um, available yeah. um, housing. You know, if if we were comparing Texas cities, Austin included, to other cities around the country, right? If we were thinking about Minneapolis or Los Angeles, or New York City, you know, where where the uh, city government goes out of its way to work with housing and urban development to create, you know, low and medium income housing, right, for folks. Is is that a solution in Texas where we need to create more of this low income housing? Because it seems like we work either on homelessness uh, or, or trying to plan a community and there's not so much in the area of low and medium income homes in, in our cities. Did you follow that, Woody? I'm sorry, I cut out for a second, but I think I, I got the gist yeah. of your question. Um, I, yeah, I think that the dif- we definitely need to be building specifically, you know, what we would call affordable housing, capital A affordable housing. So for housing that's income restricted, limited to low and moderate income households. Um, and that means that we need to dedicate more funding, whether that yeah. be local, whether that be at the state level, whether that be the state and federal level working together. But we need to, that's how we get that's how we solve a lot of issues. You know, it's 
the way to, 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 to stop people from, from entering homelessness is by having them be able to, to live in housing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if especially and you know the people who are entering homelessness are those who are at the lowest incomes usually. So and most of the times those sorts of housing um rely on on subsidies on funding from from the government. Uh and so I think that there's kind of a tension between local politics and state politics especially yeah. when it comes to how we provide um low and moderate income households how how we get them new housing units on the ground. Is this just a development and real estate question, or are we also looking at wage discrepancies? Like, what is the yeah. coordination mm, between yeah. our affordable housing crisis and current wages in the state of Texas? Yeah, I'd say you definitely can't separate the two. They're yeah. they're inextricably linked together. Um, we talk about cost burden households, so that means any household who's paying more than thirty percent of their ho- of their income on housing, they're, they're considered cost burdens. And in Austin, almost one in over one in three uh, renters are cost burden right now. So you know that kind of links directly between income and housing costs. And we know housing costs are rising at a at a higher pace than than incomes are rising throughout the country. And, that, and that's certainly true in, in Texas as well. So you can't really separate the two. I think that um, they both have to. We both have to develop more housing and, and wage. Uh, increase wages in order to really solve the problem. It's not a one a one size fits all situation for sure. What are some of the incentives out there for developers? You know, it's it's much more appeasing to develop for high incomes where you can maximize your profit. Right. What are some of the ways that you encourage developers to take on affordable housing projects? Yeah, so so in Austin at least there's some some local programs. Uh, we refer to them as sort of density bonuses, where basically um, uh, developers are able to build more than what uh, the current existing land use would um, let them do in exchange for making sure that they provide some of those no, new units as income restricted affordable housing units. Um, of course, that doesn't work in some jurisdictions that don't have such strict uh, zoning laws. Um, so that's one way that we can incentivize um, developers to include affordable housing. We can also just make sure that, um, uh, you know, by lowering the cost of land, that means that in the, the, the future um, cost of the housing will be less intense on the actual renters. And there are a lot of ways that you could do that. Um, uh, but... Uh, yeah, lowering the overall developmental cost is, is a big way of, of making it so that developers are, um, you know, they pass yeah. on the cost less yeah. to the renters. You know, Naomi, during the pandemic, we talked a lot about the threat of eviction, right? That became very real when people weren't working, weren't able to work, especially a lot of low-wage earners. And one of the things that we often talked about was this idea that if someone with a family becomes homeless, right, or without a house – the impact on our on that child and then subsequently on our system is far more than what a rent subsidy or low-income housing subsidy would have been. I mean, this now becomes a deal where this child uh, is practically hopeless in terms of the potential for success, right? Without a home, it becomes very hard for us to get someone back on their feet, and uh, it takes a significant chunk out of them in terms of uh, their potential, right? And so... 
we're talking much more than just low-income housing. We're talking about lives here when we're talking about these kids. Yeah, ha- not having housing is one of those things we love to call an ACE, an adverse childhood experience. That's right. And if you get up to four of those, you know, your chances of being able to have this sustainability in adulthood decreases significantly. So we definitely need to get out there and push policymakers on affordable housing. I, I remember one time at Children's Risk, we sat around counting how many ACEs we each had. Was, we have too many ACEs <laughs> at Children's Risk and the staff. It's sort of an interesting thing. Woody, uh, a, a final question, very, very briefly as we uh, uh, go into our next segment. We're in the middle of a legislative session right now. If we had a state legislature, which we do not have, that seemed to be amenable to figuring out how do we solve some of these problems with housing, what would be the first thing that you would tell them uh, from your perspective as a researcher, Woody, what would you tell them needs to happen? What, what's, what's a piece of law that you might uh, will into existence, Woody? Yeah, I don't think there's, there's one specific mm-hmm. law that I can um, say, but generally I think that one thing that you just touched on there is, is to fix housing instability. One thing we can do is really make sure that renters, um, who are probably have the most unstable housing conditions across the board, um, are able to have uh, better rights. You know, they're able to have more protections than what they currently have given um, that they're allowed to have in law. So that would mean allowing them to the right to, to cure, which is basically you can uh, stop an eviction in process uh, after a certain number of days. Right now wow. it's three across the state of Texas. And if you expanded that, that would really mean that a lot fewer people um, lose their housing than they can, uh, you know, correct that that lease violation usually non-payment of rent woody rogers with affordable housing austin uh thank you woody very much for being on the growing up in america program and uh, we'll talk to you soon woody thank you We're Eye of the Tiger with Jason Sabo, Under the Dome with Jason Sabo, up in Austin. Our man- Jason, we used to do Crazy Train for you. Whatever happened to that? I don't know. I think that we need to change the music game. I was like, you know, I want to go 21st century, not even Crazy Train. Oh, you want to go 21st you know, next- century. Jason, do you I do, do you even do. know a 21st really century song? I'm wondering, Jason, do you know I, any 21st? I, I do. You do. I know a couple. Like, I know a couple. Which one would you? Which which song would you like, Jason? We'll make sure you put that on for you next time. Do you have one? Do, do we have? Do they, I do have a, like a Ryan Bingham song, maybe. Ryan Bingham. Wow. Yeah, very Texas flavor right there. Yeah. Or you know, we could go. There's like this the group I've been listening to a lot lately is Us Tribalistas, which is this Brazilian supergroup from like the 2010 era. Totally 21st century there, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) 10 years. (laughs) Excellent. Hey, Jason, uh, what's the big news out of Austin these days? I mean, you're there at the state capitol. Uh, you were there with us last week as we did the big uh, the big rally uh, against human trafficking. What's the, what's the, what's the big, what's the gist of things right now? You feeling good? I am feeling good. And I have to say, Bob, uh, you know, you haven't lived until you've stood on the third floor of the Cap- Texas Capitol Rotunda and looked down on Bob Sanborn leading, leading a couple hundred people in, in chants for uh, the fight against human trafficking. It was an awesome event. Congratulations to Children at Risk for getting so many people out. Uh, and, you know, 
things are picking up. I think that the weather's been crazy in Austin this week. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have literally trees falling in my neighborhood right now. Everything's covered in ice. So the, the capital is kind of iced over for the last couple of days wow. as well. Not a lot happening. But I do think that folks need to know that the Senate Finance Committee, you know, is kind of like the post office. They're going to keep meeting this week through the, through sleet and snow and dark of night. The Senate Finance Committee shall not be dissuaded from its work. And they are talking about things like the Health and Human Services budget mm-hmm. on Friday and the Texas Education Agency's budget on Monday. Yeah. So things are happening already because the Senate is moving forward because it announced its committees. The House, I'm guessing, will probably announce their committees next week, maybe the week after next at the latest. And then the Senate committees will get rolling. It feels I me mean, people are going to you know be amazed when I say this, but you know they'll. they'll they're sort of working this week. Things have been messed up by the mm-hmm. storm. Uh, they'll come back again next week, and next week the session's twenty percent over already. Wow, right? That's and amazing. It doesn't feel like a lot is, has already gotten done. Yeah, but you know we're all the the things are moving, and one of the things that you know I you know, I, you know Mandy Campbell, children at risk yeah. policy guru, has just been working to to herself to death really trying to get authors for these bills, trying to get people who are signed up with their names on the bill to get the bill moving through the process. Because at this point, you know, with almost 20% of the session being over, the clock is your number one opponent, not the opposition party or people who might oppose your bill. It's the clock that is your enemy. And I think that we'll start to see the weed out happen really quickly because as the Senate Finance committee is rolling next week. Then other Senate committees will start having hearings in the next couple of weeks, and we'll start seeing things moving really quickly first on the Senate side. And I also, you know, we're all waiting to see what the governor's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of emergency priorities are too. And I think that we already know some of that. You know, the, there'll be a lot of uh, legislation to prohibit COVID vaccine mandates. I think yeah. are coming really quickly. Hey, J- and hey Jason, a whole bunch of stuff around the border. I wanted to mention. Yeah, I'd love to talk about border stuff, but but the thing I wanted to mention is I was reading the Economist this week, and uh, this big article about Congress is gridlocked, but the America's America's state houses are very much not. And lo and behold, J- Jason Sabo was in the Economist. What's the deal with that, Jason? Well, you know, it's hilarious. I think the Economist is paying a lot of attention to what happens in Texas politics. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this, Bob. And I don't know. I always think about our friend Deborah Zuluaga, uh, who El Paso. is yeah. out in El Paso. And I don't know if you remember with something that she said at the end of last year, kind of her hope for the legislative session this year. And one of the things she said is that we would stay focused on the important stuff mm. and ignore all the distractions. And I think that that Economist article really does a good job of kind of highlighting what she's talking about. And there's a lot of these distractions out there. And I think that, you know, I'm quoted in there, you know, basically talking about the fact that we are, again, going to have a session where we're talking about people's private parts a lot. And I'm just (laughs) like, I'm over it. I'm done. It's a little weird that we're still talking about it. But again, just this week, we see these bills being filed, and we know that this is going to be a big part of the political conversation again. And I think about our friend in El Paso reminding us, don't bite. Ignore the distractions. Stay focused on the big stuff. And they're going to have these bills. Who knows if they're going to pass? But for as long as possible, 
we need to focus on the big stuff. And I'm not saying that, you know, stopping those kinds of bills is not big stuff. It is. But there's a lot of other stuff that's happening, too, and we need to be mindful of all of it. Naomi? Jason, how are you doing today? Great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit more about the influence of the budgets? You know, we're looking, particularly in education, we're looking at this big teacher shortage. How how much impact can these budget conversations have on some of the minute issues that we're looking to change this session? Well, I think that the uh, could have a transformative impact on everything that everybody who is listening right now, every facet of your lives. If you're sitting in a car right now driving, looking around you, thinking about why the roads are not better, why we are sitting in traffic so much, why our highways are so congested, whatever it is, that's, that could be corrected by this budget. If you're frustrated by the fact that you don't have access to basic health care, your neighbors don't have access to basic health care, that's it. If you're frustrated because you're an employer and your employees can't find uh, child care, that could be corrected with the budget short. It's a budget surplus we have right now. The reality is the Texas budget surplus right now is more than the entire budget of most states. Right. Understand, we have so much money right now to do something transformative with. The question is, do we have the political will to do something other than tax cuts? And I don't know about that. You know, and and tax cuts, and and it always gets me, right, how much uh, our governor and others want to spend on the border. Money that, when you visit the border, you realize that we have all these state police and others that this these extra money, extra budget dollars are going towards, and no one's really doing anything down there. People laugh at the idea of how many police you see per mile that aren't really doing anything. But I guess it's more about the political statement, right? If you spend billions of dollars on surplus police on the border, uh, it makes a nice political statement for Republicans. Is that what it's all about, Jason? It ultimately is about how people... Uh, remember, our legislators don't do things like quadruple the amount of funding we're going to send to the border, which is some of the people are proposing, mm-hmm. mind you. It's already a lot of money, and we're going to quadruple it. And those choices that they make about how they do and don't spend public money or how they do and don't write laws are fundamental policy and most likely, more likely, political choices. They know that the single driver issue, if you poll after poll after poll for more than a decade, and I've been watching this, yeah. if you ask Texans the single most important issue facing the state, 50, 55 to 65, depending upon the, the moment, of Republicans will say border security and immigration yeah. are my two yeah. biggest issues, one of those two, which is ultimately can be distilled, arguably, that brown people scare me, right? <laughs> and that's a, that's a winning that's issue right. in the primary. Yeah. And, I mean, and how we have it now, we have a political system that is very responsive to that, which means that we spend billions of taxpayer dollars, which could be going toward things like child care, health care access, better schools, higher teacher pay, to, per your earlier point. Mm-hmm. But instead, we're spending it on the border. Wow. Very good. Jason Sabo is uh, with Frontera, and he's uh, our man in Austin. We're excited, uh, Jason, to have you on, and we're glad that you join us uh, You know, every so often to talk about what's going on under the, under the dome because in Texas, it's crazy, Jason, isn't it? I mean, it's just wild, some of the things that happen up in Austin, and people need to be aware of it. You know, Instead of just making fun, people need to start speaking up a little bit more. I totally agree. And one of the things that I'm hopeful about this session is I think people understand last session 
the the people the only people who were at the Capitol were the people who thought COVID was a hoax. Yeah. The rest of the public stayed away, right? Except for a few weirdos who, you know, didn't mind having a thing jabbed up their nose in an army tent every day. Like me. And but the reality is nobody was there. And I think that the legislature knew that and acted differently, passed different bills, just it was functionally and ultimately from a policy standpoint, procedurally a very different place. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see how that plays out this session, because I think that we're already seeing much more of a public presence than we did, obviously, last last session, and hopefully that will change the direction of things. Jason Sabo, thanks for being on Growing Up in America. Up next, we've got Sosina Morgan calling in from Agape Development here in the city of Houston. Sosina, are you there? So, Cena. Yes, that's me. There you go. Yes. <laughs> there she is. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Awesome to have you on the show today. Can you give Thank us you just a quick 30-second version of what's taking place at Agape Development these days? Sure. So, at Agape Development, the big thing that we're doing around affordable housing is that we are buying, or we're building homes in a specific neighborhood in Houston that's low income and selling those homes to people who are connected to this neighborhood who grew up here. And um, we offer a down payment assistance for them to be able to afford to buy a brand new home in their community. Earlier, we were talking with Woody Rogers up in Austin, and he mentioned that renters are the most vulnerable persons to experiencing housing insecurity. Can you talk to us a little bit about how home ownership uh, alleviates some of that vulnerability and what benefits there are to promoting home ownership for some of these underprivileged neighborhoods? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things we say at Agape all the time is if you can afford to rent, you can afford to buy in our neighborhood. Mm. Because if you're thinking about it, like they're paying rent and they're paying that to their landlord who then has to pay their mortgage and then make money off of being a landlord. And so we're like, if you're paying rent, you're paying someone's mortgage, just pay your own mortgage. So if we can get you to qualify for a home loan, um, let's do that. And, and let's have you be your own landlord because you're right. It's so vulnerable, vulnerable to be a renter. Your landlord could decide to raise their rent. And I'm not hating on landlords either. There's a lot of wonderful landlords in our community too, who grew up here, but they need to provide for their families. And with the cost of land in OST South Union, that's our neighborhood, um, the cost of housing, um, even down to like apartments. Um, there's so much is being developed in this area right now. We're right by University of Houston. We're right by Texas Southern University. Um, things are just going up, up, and up, and people are getting displaced. Lots of families, single moms, single individuals getting displaced. And so we really encourage home ownership for people to take back, you know, their power and their autonomy to be able to stay in this community. So, Sina, when you look around Houston, uh, not only what Agape is doing, but what other groups are doing in terms of uh, housing, what are some of the sort of really sort of super bright spots and some of the, the, the policy wins that are happening around making sure people can, can have a home? Yeah, great question. First, I'd like to just say, like, this is 
all over Houston right now. Houston is developing so quickly. Um, and we've seen a lot of gentrification. So we've seen a lot yeah. of people, you know, wanting to move back into the city. There's even name, neighborhood name changes, like what used to be called Freedman's Town, predominantly like African-American neighborhood is now called Midtown. And a lot of like 20-somethings yeah. um, want to live there, right? And so we're seeing this happen all over Houston. And there's a lot of initiatives to try to um, help renters out or help even the homeless community out to find affordable housing. And so Agape is just one way of doing this. Um, but there's also the Tejano Center, and they're building like this um, apartment complex. Um, we have an apartment complex here at Agape where we do efficiencies for um, single people or single moms with a child. Um, that's really all that the space that, that mm-hmm. can um, have. And so lots of different initiatives trying to get people into stable housing um, so that they're not displaced. And for us, it's really important because this neighborhood has seen hard times. Um, you know, it is a low-income community. There's been gangs and violence and drugs and, and just run down parts of our, our community. And so we really believe if, if there are people here who their families or they have had to live through the rough parts in this community, they should get to live through the good parts and see this community come up. Um, but they're getting priced out. And so um, we started thinking, you know, what can we do? Um, to help people stay. And that's how Agape Homes um, came to be. And then The Haven, which is the apartment complex I just mentioned, used to be like a rundown motel that we transitioned to be um, an affordable, efficiency apartment complex. What's one of the things you're learning in home ownership program about um, the knowledge base that people need to adjust from a renter's mindset to a home owning mindset? Oh, gosh, it starts with just the idea that they can be a homeowner. Every day I'm having conversations with people where they just have never considered it for themselves. Even the other day I had someone say to me, wait, what's the credit score requirement? And I'm like, well, most banks are looking for a 620. And they're like, oh, man, I have really bad credit. I'm like, look look it up. They looked it up. Their credit was in the 700s. They had just counted themselves out. And that happens. It's a mindset. They're like, I can't do this. And so that's what our program exists for. We're not just building the homes and selling them, but we're also, we'll take anybody in our program and we're going to work with you to be able to qualify for a mortgage. So I would say that's the first thing is like people learning like, oh, I can do this. They're like, oh, my mortgage would be twelve hundred. I'm paying fifteen hundred in rent right now. So like checking themselves back into the process and saying like this can be for me. This can be for my family. But the other things that we see some huge obstacles is we see a lot of credit score issues and credit report issues that we're working on, and a lot of education needs to happen around credit and loans, taking out money, paying it back, how to do that, when to do that, and it's complicated. I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, I'm learning new things every day about this, um, and then wow. also about just what it takes to qualify for a mortgage um, all the way to when we have somebody who's finally um, they've applied for their mortgage, they are pre-approved or signed a contract with us, their house is built. We do a class with them called preventative maintenance where they get to walk through their brand new home with the contractor and learn what it takes to take care of their home. um, And, and, you know, be able to have like that security for their families for a long time rather than, not knowing what all it takes. Mm -hmm. They're used to like maybe a landlord calling them when something's broken or something happens. Um, And so making sure that their property doesn't become, you know, run down or just have issues that they could take care of earlier if they knew. Um, So we try to cover every basis from the very beginning all the way to to the end. Yeah. So, Sina, when, when I'm a 
um, you know, in a, a job that I'm not earning too much, but I really want to earn or own a home. Uh, how important is it that there are good schools in my neighborhood uh, if I have kids? Is it is it an afterthought because you really want a home first and foremost, and then maybe you'll get involved? Or, or are, are people actively looking for that high-performing school that happens to be in a low-income neighborhood? That's a great question. I think it depends family to family. Yeah. But I know in our neighborhood, OSC South Union, we have elementary schools that are A-rated here. Mm-hmm. Um, we have B-rate, a B-rated high school. And so I think sometimes low-income neighborhoods get this this bad rap for having, you know, right. very good public schools. And that's yeah. not always true. Oh, that's right. And, be it, it's, and it's not true for our community. And, on t- and those are our public schools. There's also different opportunities. There's a private school in our neighborhood, but it's pay what you can. So there, I know families who pay $5 a month for their kids to get private school education. Um, and so there's a lot, there's kids schools, um, you know, there's yes, press, there's lots of options for good education. And so I would say if somebody, if that is something that's important to them, which it should be. And for most of our families at Agape, that's the number one priority, especially if the parent didn't have an excellent education, they're thinking about that for their kids. They want that. They want better for their children. And so as they see this community coming up, and improving, mm-hmm. gentrifying, and the schools are getting better, and they've lived here for generations, <laughs> you know, and yeah. their families have, and they've seen it through the rough parts. They want this for their kids. They want to stay. Right. Sasina Morgan is with Agape Development. Sasina, thank you so much for being on Growing Up in America. Thank you. Layla, date of the day. Layla Mazzali is with us today. And Layla, how you been doing? You been working hard? Been been working hard, hanging in there. How dare he ask you a question like that, right? (laughs) And Layla knows why I'm asking this, because she has been flat out. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's uh, she's like the hardest working woman at uh, Children at Risk this week, that's for sure. So Layla and your team, right, you and Christine, I mean, you guys have been doing doing a lot of uh, good work. So thank you, Layla. Layla, what is – I know the number is 112, and – we're, we're guessing that's how many housing units are available in all of Texas, right? I mean, it's it's such a low number. What is one twelve, Layla? <laughs> that would be that would be pretty low. Um, one twelve is still um, a pretty alarming number, though. It's one hundred and twelve hours a week um, is how much a renter in Texas would have to work at minimum wage to afford a two bedroom rental housing unit on average. Wow. Wow. And, and here's the thing. We know that there are people that are doing two and three jobs. You know, people think, well, that's not, ha-, but it's actually happening. Yeah. We're seeing that a lot yeah. in Texas. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of an amazing thing. How does that compare Layla to other States, uh, uh, to your knowledge? Well, I, I don't have the data in front of me, but one thing I do know is that Texas honors the federal minimum wage and doesn't have a state-specific minimum wage, which also impacts um, how much a worker would need to work to be able to afford rental housing. Um, you know, seven twenty-five an hour is is not enough really anywhere in the country at this point. Um, but especially in Texas, um, you know, where housing is not the cheapest in the nation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that comes out to 16 hours a day, seven seven days a week, you know? 
But so. check this out. Most states are moving closer to this $15 an hour yeah. mark, right? So if you did that, according to these numbers, they would only have to work 60 hours a week. <laughs> I think that's a much better deal, it's right? Better. It's not good enough, though, is it? I mean, that's the thing, right? It's We don't make it easy for people in Texas, right? So for our working our working families, it's it's a tough go. And, and what are some other things that we need to worry about when it comes to uh, income and, and, and housing, Layla, that, that your research has come up with? So, I mean, one in eight Texas households is already spending more than 50% of their income on housing. So that also contributes to things like food insecurity or foregoing medicine and going to the doctor, any basic necessities you may have to relinquish in favor of paying for your rent. Yeah. Wow. Layla, uh, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to go off topic a little bit. I know one of the big pieces of research you're working on now is uh, these high performing schools in low income neighborhoods. Are, are you amazed at the number that we have? I mean, I, you and I would both agree we don't have enough of these, but what what are you finding in your sort of initial uh, bits around research in terms of some of these high performing schools? Well, I mean, I, I can't say too much on it yet, um, yeah. but we do know that, you know, it is it is possible for schools that serve high poverty populations to see high achievement. However, those schools and all schools are going to continue to need increasing resources to be able to make that happen. Um, these schools are exceptional and deserve to be celebrated, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can reproduce that across Texas without an increase in resources going to these schools and to their families. Yeah, very good. Layla Mazzali is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Layla, thank you for all your hard work, and thanks for being part of the date of the day. Thanks, guys. All right. Next up, we've got Ava Thibodeau at Timonos CDC, Bread of Life. Ava, are you there? I am here. Good afternoon. It's great to have you on Growing Up in America today. Could you just give us a little overview about the hot topics, the hot highlights going on over with you? Sure. So things are cooking at Timonos. First of all, I have to say that Temenos is a word that is Greek, and it means safe healing space, and that is what we do. We provide housing and hope and healing and supportive services for people who have been on the streets the longest um, and are are now needing to move into permanent supportive housing. Today we've talked... We have a new... Go ahead. Yeah, we, we have a new building under construction that we should be moving into end of May, beginning of June, and we'll have 95 new permanent housing units, multifamily units, um, and offices for case management and health and nutrition um, in order to serve the most vulnerable in our community. What types of supports are you guys seeing as beneficial to helping the unhoused population move from unhoused to housing secure? Sure. So our model is called permanent supportive housing. And so in that, what we do is We recognize that ending homelessness begins with housing, and that is an extremely powerful intervention that in and of itself increases wellness. Um, However, it's not not the end-all and be-all. And so we wrap services around people. So we have case managers. We have peer specialists, folks who've experienced homelessness in their pasts and now, you know, are being paid to, to walk along with others to help them on their journey. And we also have 
um, round-the-clock resident assistance available. And so we really, we try to create a community doing everything that we can to having morning coffee hour, um, to playing music, having open mic nights, karaoke, Mm. bingo. Um, But then we also, we have food service. Uh, So many of our folks have extreme food insecurity. They have zero income. They're not eligible for um, for SNAP or for um, uh, any kind of uh, disability benefits. And so um, we work closely with the food bank and with the BP Company Kitchen, and we serve a hot meal to everyone every day. Um, Second Servings uh, provides regular food so that folks can have food in their units to cook for themselves. Eva, one of the things that we've asked a couple of people today is, you know, in terms of policies that we have in Houston and Texas that that should be changed when it comes to uh, housing, for for you, from your perspective, what what do you see as sort of, you know, if if you were uh, a queen for a day and could just, you know, wave your wand and something would change, what would it be around housing? Well, you know, a real key thing is that we have great partnerships with our public housing authorities in the greater Houston areas. Um, the problem is that many private landlords refuse to take the vouchers, um, the, the rental assistance oh, wow. vouchers. And so you have folks out there, and these are people who are exiting homelessness and also people who are just experiencing poverty. Um, and, you know, their housing rent portion is, you know, just unbearable. And they literally cannot find a landlord that will accept that voucher. And if I could change one thing right yeah, now, it yeah. would be that you you cannot discriminate based on source of rental income. Another question I wanted to ask you is that, you know, the New York Times did this big, huge article about housing in Houston and homelessness in Houston. And uh, if, if you didn't read the whole thing, you would think, and I hear this, you probably hear the same thing, is that, uh, we've solved homelessness in Houston, right? <laughs> right? You're laughing because you get it, right? You've heard the same thing as I have, right? Oh, yeah. And what do you say to people like that? Maybe we do it better than may- many others. I'm not even sure we're the best at it. But talk a little bit about that and how Houston compares and how we still have a ways to go, right? Sure. So, yeah. I mean, really, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's yes and. Yeah. Um, yes, there is still homelessness. I mean, we have not homelessness is the result of a lot of broken systems, right? I mean, we're, we're, you look at our you know, public incarceration, you look at public education, you look at affordable housing, um, you know, income, uh, you know, effects of trauma, um, systemic and institutional racism, right? All of those types of things of foster care, um, you know, all of those things contribute to homelessness. So we haven't turned off the feeder systems. Um, which means that we're still going to have new people entering homelessness every day. Um, now, I've had the opportunity to work nationally with many partners from excellent cities and to learn from them and to share what's happening here. There are some really unique things in Houston. You know, one is that service providers and our local governmental jurisdictions um, really embraced some new legislative change that came out of Congress called the Hearth Act, mm-hmm. and we embraced it and we changed the way that we do business. Yeah. Um, instead of working in silos and instead of insisting that people get housing ready by going through treatment and being sober and accepting, you know, uh, mental health intervention, you know, we really embraced this concept of housing first 
Um, and then we came together as a community and as a system to work seamlessly together in a collaborative way that is very rarely seen throughout the rest of the country. Um, I think that the, the typical human condition is to hold on to your piece of the pie. Yeah. And in Houston, people really gave up pieces of their pie and said, hey, you know, what we really do well is street outreach. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to give to the system. Someone else can do the housing and the case management. And so we have made incredible strides. We've also invested in and been able to build a lot of affordable housing um, with the disaster money that came in yeah. post-Harvey. There were some policy things that were put in that anybody who got new construction money or rehab money with those dollars to do housing had to have set-aside units for the coordinated system that refers people into housing and out of homelessness. So, you know, there are some things that we're doing really, really well. Now, keeping the wheels on the bus, that's a huge job. (laughs) Yeah, that's Um, for sure. I mean, this is a big... You have to be ever vigilant. Yeah, this is such a a big issue. Eva Thibodeau is with uh, uh, Temenos uh, Housing, CDC. Thank you so much, Eva, for all the work that you do. Thanks for being on Growing Up in America today. Hey, you betcha. Thank you, guys. Right. I, I always love this little deep in the heart. I don't know why, you know. I think if I didn't live in Texas, I might not like it, but I sort of I sort of like it. <laughs> it's you know got a I mean? catchy little yeah. tune to it. Uh, with us is uh, Nick Mitchell Bennett. He is the executive director of Come Dream, Come Build. Uh, Nick, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Very, very good. Hey, talk, talk to us a little bit about what Come Dream, Come Build is. What's that all about? Well, Come Dream, Come Build started about... 50 years ago, in 1974, in Brownsville, Texas, and we were actually called the Community Development Corporation of Brownsville, um, and our initial mission was to replace the 1,800 out, outhouses and pit privies in the city of Brownsville in 1974, and from that, we've grown to be one of the top affordable housing producers, nonprofit in the state of Texas, headquartered um, right out of little old Brownsville, Texas. Yeah. Um, and next few years ago, we realized that we're working in so many other communities, we need to change our name. So in order to keep our same acronym of CDCB, um, we, we started looking at um, Come Dream, Come Build as our name because that's what people do. They come, they come to us. Um, they dream. Um, we build them a house. We find them a house. We rent them a house. Um, we help them get them educated. We lend them money. Um, but it's all about building dreams. Yeah, it's about building the future. Hey, Nick, I don't know if you remember. I came down there with a group of graduate students a number of years ago. We were looking at leaders in Brownsville and in the Valley that were doing extraordinary work, and we visited with you. But I remember taking a tour of some of the homes that you guys were building, and and getting a sense that the work that you were doing is extraordinary. Right? These homes are not regular homes these are like extraordinary homes uh for low-income families the work that your guys are doing is uh is sort of above and beyond and the other thing that struck me is that uh a lot of times people don't expect to find leaders like yourself and your team uh in places like brownsville talk a little little bit about that how you built this sort of dynamo of a team and you're doing these extraordinary things that any city in texas or, or in the nation would be happy to have a group like yours in there well, thank you very much. That's, uh, 
That's quite nice, and I don't know how much of it's true, but um, <laughs> we, try to, we, we try to live up. We try to live up that, to that. Um, you know, we start with our clients. We start with the people we we're trying to serve. And anybody who wants to work from us, if you are willing to, you know, do your work in order for low-income people to build wealth. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. You can get on our website, and it's going to tell you this big, long mission statement. Actually, we need to change it because our real mission is about um, building wealth for low-income people. And, so, you know, we do that through housing and housing design and construction, whether it be rental housing or home ownership. We do it through education. You know, we run a school where we do job training and GED and teach people how to use a CNC machine and all that kind of stuff. And then we do financing and, you know, whether it be a mortgage or a small dollar loan, but it's all building products that will, will, will yeah. work to build wealth for low income people and, and then giving them the choice to make those choices. So, you know, when you start starting out where you ask people, what do you want? And, and you really get folks that are like, you know, what do you mean? What do I want? Cause nobody gives our clients ever that choice, whether it be what loan product do you want or what house do you want, or do you want blue or do you want green or do you want a front porch or a back porch, you know, asking them what they want because the choice you and I got over time, and I'm just assuming how you grew up may have been very much like I grew up where you had a little bit more choice and choice builds power. Mm -hmm. And when people don't have choice, then their power is diminished. So we try to instill all of the stuff around choice and just by starting where our clients are at, you know, and you start doing that, you get a lot of people who are like, I want to go work there, you know, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's working out, you know. So it's all about staying true to what we believe is is the right thing to do. Nick, um, a lot of times when we're talking about uh, low-income families, we're talking about cycles of poverty, right? Um, when when yeah. are you seeing a critical moment in the life trajectory of low-income families of inserting these tools to make that change. Junior high. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I don't know about you. I'm old enough to remember, and I'm sure you sound very, very young, so you probably don't understand. She is very young. We had, you know, and this sounds awful, we had home economics in school. And I learned how to balance a checkbook, Okay. We'll do that in school because we're so focused on passing these darn standardized tests that we have no working mm. skills when we get out of high school. And, and we, you know, we're getting rid of the shop class. We're getting rid of woodworking class. You know, th- that, that people need to, you, you know, we want, we want students to have a choice to go to college or not to go to college. And if they don't go to college, that there's a place for them to go. The average age of a plumber in the Rio Grande Valley, and I'm sure in Houston the same, is 55 years of age. Right. So are we really teaching people stuff that they need to know or are we trying to make it look like we are? And and because I want wealth to be built and 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 Brownsville is one of the poorest cities in the United States. Yeah. Just for the working our we're we're working our butt off for that not to continue. Right. We've got mayor and city commission in Cameron County. You know, we're we're doing all that we could do. You know, we're bringing SpaceX into Brownsville, right? Yeah. Well, we need people with education. We need people who have an edu- you know, who can gra- who graduated from high school that can do this. So, you know, financial education is required is a required curriculum in school, but we're not teaching it, right? I mean, and and so we're having that we get people who come to us one out of every ten per people who come to us, and a thousand people come to my office every year to buy a house. A thousand want to buy a house in Brownsville. Wow. 
and only a hundred of them can buy a house within three months of when they walk in the door because the majority of them have, you know, have poor credit. And a lot of it is not because they did anything wrong. It's because they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's really about educating folks so that they understand that, you know, that not to do this, to do this. And also to educate folks like they have power in their community and they could demand certain things from their leaders that they should be demanding. Affordable housing is a major issue, you know, in this state. And I was so excited to be talking to you guys because you're like talking like three segments in a row have been about affordable housing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like the promised land. People actually asking questions about housing. But it's every, but not one community is putting their money, other than maybe Austin and a little bit of Houston, a little bit of Dallas, but their own money into affordable housing. We need to educate people so that they understand, hey, wait, our community should be doing this for them. You know, you're right, Nick, is that Texas doesn't take this as seriously as it should, right? I mean, what a great economic development tool, right, to focus on housing our citizens, housing low-income families. I mean, the power of this, it's, it's something that we really need to be talking about uh, so much more. Uh, you ready for a couple of fun questions for Nick? As we finish out our show, Nick, we have to ask you, I'm going to first, uh, what did you want to be? Uh, what did you want when you grew up? What did you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, this is really embarrassing. You know, I wanted to be president of the United States. Oh, yeah. I no longer it's not want too that late, job. Nick. It's not too late. Well, you're, you're not old <laughs> enough, Nick. I can guarantee you that. I mean, we've oh, had no. a string oh, of... Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. What was your favorite book to read as a child or to have read to you? My favorite book still to this day is My Name is Asher Lev by Kaim Pokhtar. Wow. I don't know that book. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Phenomenal book about a Hasidic Jewish boy who was an artist who struggles with his life in the community and his life outside the community. It is a fantastic book, and I still to this day still love that book. I read it in I don't know early high school, and I think I've read it two or three times. Uh, Our final question of the day: What was your favorite TV show growing up, Nick? This is going to tell his age. My favorite TV show growing up. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, this is not going to tell my age because it's a little before my time, but it was still in early syndication. But man, I loved I love Lucy. Oh, That's wow. He's got to be the funniest person on TV. Yeah, and yeah. To this day, Lucille Ball is just, she's, she's still just in, all over it. And, wow. and Desi Arnaz, they were, they were a great team. And, I'm much younger than that. Um, but <laughs> I know that's right. Yeah. We're that. all much I'm, younger I'm than more that. Of a Bra- I'm more of the Brady Bench bunch <laughs> of age. Nick, um, but I still love watching. I love Lucy. Nick Mitchell Bennett, and he is uh, the, the leader of the Community Development Corporation of Brownsville. Come. What is it now? It's Come Dream. Come Dream, Come Build. There you go, Nick. Hey, thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program, Nick. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. That's it for us at Growing Up in America. Naomi, thanks for being here today. Awesome. You'll be back, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. We do this every day for children. For children. Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my right and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous. My tummy's turning and I'm feeling kind of homesick. Too much pressure and I'm nervous. This when the taxi man turned on the radio. And a Jay-Z song below. And 
Howdy folks, this is Big Kev, your most excellent host, the Roots Rock Revolution, and you lucky folks you're listening to, KPFT, Houston, 90.1 FM, HD1, check us out, you'll love it. Stories come to life at your local parks and forests, they're places of wonder, and they're closer than you think. Make the forest part of your story today at a local park near you, or find one at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. I'm Chris Jackamick. I served in the United States Air Force, and I've deployed three times. So in 2017, I was serving as an Air Force First Sergeant. Our motto in that role is, my job is people, everyone is my business. But unfortunately, in that year, I would lose my own brother, Lance Corporal Adam Jackamick, to suicide. The majority of veteran suicides are from guns. I store my weapons securely, not only for myself, but for my family. Store all your guns securely. Help stop suicide. My service never stops. Brought to you by N Family Fire and the- Hi, I'm Rourke from Wide Open Spaces, and as KPFT settles into our new home, we're reaching out to nonprofit neighbors right here in the community. This week, we're joining hands with the Third Ward Community Mana Food Pantry, collecting cans and money so we can stomp out hunger right here in our own backyard. Starting January 25th through Sunday, January 29th, we are opening the doors here at KPFT so you can drop off food donations, or dollars to help those in need in our community. Thanks again, and 